Charlie Cole Hayes, and The Greatest Voyage, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. And when you talk about adventures across our solar system, your mind naturally turns to the Voyager mission, now exploring interstellar space. Our guest this week led the team that figured out how Voyagers 1 and 2 could weave their way among the outer planets and onward toward infinity. Bill Nye calls in from Canada to talk about something that is shared by millennials and the President of the United States, excitement about getting humans to Mars. And Bruce Batts will help me give away another copy of Star Trek, the official guide to our universe. Emily Lakdawalla is the Planetary Society's senior editor. Emily, as you said in your uh, blog entry last week on uh, October 11th, it was a very busy week, and the the one that we're entering uh, doesn't seem uh, far behind. (laughs) The one that we're entering includes a big meeting of the Division for Planetary Sciences of the American Astronomical Society, as well as the European Planetary Science Congress. But that's not the biggest action this week. The biggest action is the arrival of ExoMars at Mars, and that's going to be real exciting. Now that these two spacecraft have uh, sort of kissed each other goodbye and gone their separate ways, quite literally, what happens next? Well, the two spacecraft are only on very slightly different trajectories, and that has to change or else ExoMars would follow Schiaparelli right down onto the surface, and that would be bad. (laughs) So um, about 12 hours after the separation, they planned a very small rocket firing to adjust ExoMars's path so that it just misses Mars and is in a good position to fire its rockets on Wednesday in order to enter orbit. A lot of people very curious, of course, about uh, Schiaparelli. I'm trying to pronounce that with the proper Italian uh, pronunciation of it. The instrumentation on it, but it's it's really not a mission that's about science, is it? No, it's an entry demonstration module. Europe has not landed a mission on Mars before, and it plans to land a really big rover in a few years. So this mission is simply designed to test a number of key technologies that they'll be using. The spacecraft is battery-operated and is only expected to last a few days on the surface before going silent. The real science mission here is ExoMars Trace Gas Orbiter. Emily, I expect to be uh, in the room at the DPS meeting where they will be uh, doing the live stream as uh, Scaparelli approaches Mars and uh, sets down safely, we hope, and ExoMars goes into orbit. Uh, when can people take part in this and how can they take part? Well, I just posted a timeline on the blog that details all of the expected events in a few time zones, so you can follow along with that, as well as links to ESA's live stream. But probably uh, Twitter is going to be just as good for you to follow the events. There are four official Twitter accounts, and then, of course, space fans around the world are going to be collecting online to cheer ExoMars on as it enters orbit, and Schiaparelli hopefully turns on and sends us its signals, and uh, we can follow it all the way down to the Martian surface. You bet. And I look forward to uh, seeing you at DPS, Emily. I'll be there with bells on. (laughs) She's our senior editor, the planetary evangelist for the Planetary Society, and a contributing editor to Sky and Telescope magazine and uh, DPS, one of her favorite times of year. We're going to go on to talking with uh, the boss, the CEO of the Planetary Society, Bill Nye, the science guy. And Bill is on the phone this week calling us from Alberta, Canada. Bill, what's going on up there? The Dark Skies Festival. People come from all over Canada and a few from the U.S. for these uh, series of talks. And uh, I'm one of the talkers. 
we talk about the cosmos and our place in space and how wonderful it is. Someone else who's talking about space, the President of the United States. Oh, yeah, he's kind of a big deal. (laughs) For a while longer. But he said, let's go to Mars in the 2030s. Now, Matt, I'm, who am I? I'm the happiest guy in the world, right? But the 2030s is a decade, not a date. I think what always slows us down, by us, I mean humankind and those of us interested in space exploration, is we don't set a day. There's songs about setting a date. And if we don't set a day, then things don't get done. Deadlines are your friend, Matt. I believe you said that. I, no, I said they're magic. Oh, yeah. It's even bigger. So without the specific date chosen, I just think these things have a tendency to diffuse politically. And having the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, NASA, in the lead is good. Is what you want. By not having the U.S. in the lead without a date and not having a date, there's a very good chance that politically this will just run out of steam. We at the Planetary Society will do our best to keep the steam fired up. Did you see the Ipsos poll that indicated, among other things, 40% of millennials would volunteer for a trip to the Red Planet? Uh, now, you say that when you're a millennial and you're excited, and you say, <laughs> I don't even care if I don't come back, right? But when the chips are down, when shoving comes to pushing, I think millennials will want to come back. But aren't you impressed that, you know, even if 75% oh, yeah, of those it's the 40- coolest thing. <laughs> it's so romantic. Oh, man, it's so romantic. Yes, yes, yes. And this is what I say all the time about uh, when Elon Musk did this presentation at the Astronautical Congress. It's the enthusiasm that's so amazing, the enthusiasm. I'll say, and I'm sure you're going to find an enthusiastic dark sky uh, audience up there in uh, Canada, where we have many listeners to this program. Have fun. Oh, yes. Yes, thank you. I will. Carry on, Matt. Good to speak with you. That's Bill Nye. He is the science guy. We're going to talk with um, the guy who figured out how Voyager would be able to take a grand tour of the solar system, Charlie Colhays. Ask space fans for their favorite robotic mission, and many will say Voyager. It's no wonder. Voyagers 1 and 2 are headed toward their 40th anniversaries in space. They gave us stunning close-up views of Jupiter, Saturn, and many of their moons. They revealed Uranus and Neptune as never before. And now they are teaching us about the space between the stars. They carry the Voyager golden records, those magnificent greetings to the universe, from all of us on this pale blue dot. Perhaps the greatest miracle of this mission is that it has been able to accomplish so much and visit so many worlds. A good part of the credit goes to the Voyager mission design manager, Charlie Colhays. He arrived at JPL in 1959, fresh from the U.S. Navy. He would spend more than 40 years there working on many missions, but nothing else comes close to the pride he has in Voyager. Charlie dropped by the Planetary Society studio a few weeks ago, for the extended conversation you were about to hear. Charlie, it's been far too long. Welcome back to Planetary Radio. Thank you. I have been looking forward to, in fact, I've been bugging you about this and then not getting to inviting you here to Planetary Society headquarters to have a, a general conversation about the amazing career that you've, uh, that you've led. So thank you for doing this and for being willing to take some time, too. Oh, happy to. No, Matt, it's, it's been a long time. You know, I started in 1959 at JPL and sort of had a little bit of everything, Ranger, Mariners, Viking, 
Voyager Cassini, and then even in recent times, uh, after I retired, I went back as a consultant and worked on the Mars Sample Return Campaign. So I've, I've had a chance to enjoy it all. Out of, out of all those missions, though, Voyager is certainly my favorite. I was going to ask you, your greatest achievement as a mission designer, right. which was mission design right. manager, right? That was yes. your title. Uh-huh. That was it because, uh, you know, m- many things that we do in life, we, in hindsight, we think of some things we might have done differently. As I look back on Voyager, there's nothing I would have done differently. I think we picked the best uh, flight paths out of 10,000 possibilities I mean, you have to understand the solar system has a lot of bodies out there. Yeah. And they're in constant motion. So at every instant in time, they're all in a different position. And the trick with Voyager was to find launch and arrival dates that had the largest number of interesting targets in the best positions possible, while still doing gravity assist to go from Jupiter to Saturn to Uranus to Neptune. And orchestrating that was was a pleasure. I mean... I jumped up, you know, got out out of bed in the morning, rushed into work, and I didn't look at the clock until 5.30 or 6 o'clock. Remind us again what a rare opportunity this was. Well, (laughs) the planets are going around at their own different periods and so forth. The the alignment of Earth, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune happened about once every 176 years. Hmm. But it happened for three consecutive years before it sort of fell out of position. In other words... We could have gone in 1976, 77, and 78. But if we went in 76, we had to fly very close to get enough deflection to to go on to Saturn. 1977 was sort of the Goldilocks year. And 1978, because Jupiter is overtaking Saturn, you don't want to get Mm. too much swing by. You have to fly further out. Mm -hmm. So the 1977 was the best year. And the interesting thing is, you know, the next opportunity will be, what, 2153, and and who knows? We may not even be – what I hope we're doing is saving Earth's biodiversity. I care about that a lot more than I do. As much as you Mars. care about the rest of the solar system. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Uh, and the last time, of course, was uh, when the first train ran in England somewhere. <laughs> so That's a good way to so put it. So this is a unique opportunity for sure, the 1977 one. I was talking just this morning with my uh, my daughter's boyfriend, and he was telling me about this app he has for his smartphone. It's basically a 3D model of the solar system. You can fly through it. It's absolutely accurate. You didn't have that 40 years ago. What tools did you have to try and figure out these incredibly complex trajectories? <laughs> oh, how do I answer that question? Um, well... You basically, you, you still had computer programs that computed the position and velocity of the spacecraft and the, and the different targets. We, initially, we had sort of rudimentary graphics programs that were wireframe. But eventually, I had the good fortune of bringing Jim Blinn aboard. I was going to ask you about oh, him. I'm going to bring him up again later. Okay. Jim and I produced the six Voyager, uh, Voyager animations. And, of course... Jim wrote all the software. He's brilliant. He's, he's considered the father of modern computer graphics. Not, not just for places like JPL, but right. for the movies. Right, right, right. In fact, there's even an algorithm called blend shading. You know, there's different kinds. There's fong shading. And in mm-hmm. the world of 3D modeling and animation, there are a lot of terms. And Jim has, has, has his own called blend shading. About that time, we were able to 
and other people like Paul Pinzo and Joe Biro that, that I worked with uh, began to create good graphics. So we could look, we could fly these missions, point the scan platform, look at the targets, lay down the mosaics. So we had a pretty good feel for that. The scan platform, of course, was that independent little platform on Voyager that allowed you to independently direct the cameras. That's right. It, it had it slewed in cone and clock or azimuth and elevation. I can't remember the terminology <laughs> anymore. But but the the main trick with with finding the best best Voyager encounters, we wanted there was a lot of interest in the moon Io at Jupiter. Scientists had seen. Uh, sulfur emissions, and, and they figured that there might be a chance it had might have some volcanoes. And, of course, the interesting moon at, at Saturn was Titan. Yeah. Titan was Carl Sagan's interest. And Io goes around Jupiter every 1.77 days, but, of course, Titan goes around Saturn every 16 days. So we're carving up this huge launch arrival date space in in multiples of every 1.77 days at Jupiter because we want the swing by to still go close to Io. And then at Saturn, well, you could you could either fly by Titan before you went by Saturn closest approach or after. So we call the the ones before Titan befores and the ones after Titan afters. And uh T B and T. Yeah, that's right. And so the the act the the sort of the the wonderful puzzle that we got to put together was examining all of these. There are two ways you can generate trajectories. One is with double precision trajectory programs that have, you know, 16 and 32 bits of precision, and they're very slow because they they let they take time steps and they integrate, they they move all the planets and the spacecraft a little bit, and and make very accurate computations. But but it takes a long time to run a case, especially 40 years ago. That's right. And so what we did is we developed fast conics. It, you can simulate a more precise trajectory using conic equations. Because basically, when you, when you leave the Earth, you leave on a hyperbola, then you find yourself on an ellipse around the sun, then as you approach the target planet, you're back on a hyperbola relative to that. And so by patching conics from one planet to the next, we could run hundreds or thousands of those cases in the time it took to run huh. half a dozen high-precision integrated ones. So we, we could we could cover the space quickly with the conics. And these are, And these are sections of a cone, because if you do that, yes, right, right, put a plane through a cone and you get an ellipse. Exactly. Yeah. That's right, yeah. Wow. So that simplified it, but you still had 10,000 choices. Right. That's right. I mean, to, to a degree, as much <laughs> as this was science and math, there seems to have been some art in this. No, there was. I know. Uh, I don't know. There, there was. There was art in it. Well, of course, all of this time, we're still having to make sure we can navigate within the propellant budget. Mm, yeah. So we're, we're not only looking for the best flybys, but making sure the cost to fly the mission was within limits. Now, the, thing, the one thing that, that really frightened us on that, I don't know if you remember this, but the Voyagers were launched on top of a, uh, let me think. Oh, man. Was, uh, uh, was it a Titan? It, it was a Titan Centaur. Yes, with that an upper right. solid rocket kick stage. Okay, and the solid rocket kick stage gave us the last two kilometers per second of velocity. When we launched the first Voyager, which was actually Voyager Two, which was launched first. Right, I remember. And we had well, it bothered the press for a while, but in December, 
Voyager 1 overtook Voyager 2 and everything worked out. All right, But for a few months there, they had to deal with that. When we did that, the Centaur used uh, 1,200 pounds of extra propellant to get into parking orbit. See, the Titan would, would thrust for a while. The Centaur would take off from the Titan, go into parking orbit, coast around the Earth for 30 or 40 minutes, and then fire up to do the final injection to get mm-hmm. on the way to, to Jupiter. The Centaur used up far too much propellant. In fact, John Cassani and I were down there at the Cape, and we could hear the, the chatter on the launch vehicle net. John was the manager of the Voyager project, right? I think he was at that time, yeah. <clears throat> and what had happened, they figured out much later, is the Titan had underperformed. Hmm. The mixture ratio was off, and so it left the Centaur too far short of velocity. Now, when it used the, all of that extra fuel, we're sitting down there biting our fingernails, wondering when it gets around to its final burn, does it have enough propellant left to make injection? If it doesn't, our mid-course system could never have done that. We figured it was close, and as it turned out, there was only about three seconds of propellant left in the Centaur wow. tanks. When it shut down properly, guided shut down, a solid rocket took off, and everything was okay after that. Then the, the next thing we had to be concerned about is when the solid rocket, when, when we were free of Centaur, and you've just got a solid rocket and you've got the spacecraft on top of it, the solid rocket burn still had to be controlled. The, it's, it's, the thrust had to be controlled and yeah. pitch and yaw and roll. Yeah. And it was controlled using hydrazine from Voyager's hydrazine tanks that we oh. use man, mid-course maneuvers from. Yeah, okay. so that was precious. That's right. And so that worked out okay, and I won't go into the details there. But then it came time to do the first mid-course maneuver. And it took more propellant than people thought. And the reason was the adapter is still attached to the Voyager spacecraft. The solid rocket's gone now. But if you were thrusters, Voyager thrusters looking out the back, your exhaust could impinge upon the wrappings of the struts that held the solid rocket. So this was the structure that attached the spacecraft to the solid rocket booster? Yes, yes, yes. And of course what that would do is that would reduce the effectiveness of the thrusting because some of it is sort of bouncing off. Yeah, yeah. Okay. The engineering people had underestimated that effect. They thought the effect of these thrusters and of these struts in the way would be like a seven percent reduction in, in the effectiveness of a kilogram of hydrazine. Mm-hmm. Turned out to be closer to nineteen percent. Wow. Okay. So that meant that the odds of getting to well where we wanted to go were reduced. Now we still were okay for reaching Jupiter and Saturn. But the, but the worry I had and, and other people that I was working with was that we had lost enough efficiency in, in using the propellant that the odds of getting to Uranus and Neptune might be lower. One of the challenges I and my team had was to find some way to make that back. Okay. And After all the work you had that's been doing right, that's right. for months, if not years, that's right. you had to go back to the drawing board almost right. literally. That's right. And, and the way we did that, we had originally planned 
to do trajectory corrections, let's say, it's hard to remember the numbers, 60 or 70 days out from Jupiter. And then we would do some on the outbound leg to correct it going to Saturn. Mm -hmm. And And the maneuver after Saturn was, let's say, 30 days later. Okay. It's much more efficient to use velocity when you're going faster. The faster you're going, a meter per second, believe it, it may not sound right, a meter per second is more efficient at changing something than when you're going slower. So what we did is we put in an Earthline burn at Jupiter closest approach on Voyager 2. What do you mean an Earthline burn? Well, we didn't want to take the high-gain antenna off the Earth. Hmm. So it just turned out, fortunately, that the direction of the velocity vector mm-hmm. at Jupiter's closest approach was just about aligned to the Earth-Sun line. So we could, we could continue to point at Earth and send back data without turning off. And at the same time, we could do this maneuver. Oh, it, it, That's it, just luck, right? I mean, yeah, yeah it's it all was, in the it, equations, but yeah. still... It, that's right. It, it wasn't luck to think of it, but it, well, no, we, we were searching for ways, and that came to someone. But it was fortunate that, in fact, that was a, the direction. Yeah, that's yeah, right. That there yeah. was a solution because I'm sure. I mean, the scientists would have gone crazy if they thought oh, I know. you couldn't be sending back data during <clears throat> that critical right, right, moment. Right. I mean, because I mean, Voyager's recording capability was pretty limited, wasn't it? Right. And what if it didn't survive? Right, yeah. Wow. So that, that, that all worked out. And then, of course, uh, you know the, the story. The Voyager 1 successfully returned the Titan science. I mean, you, Titan had a, a very dense atmosphere. You, but at least it, the, the, the conditions for Voyager 2 to continue on to Neptune, to Uranus and Neptune, were these. If Voyager 1 failed to capture the Titan science, we would retarget Voyager 2 for another Titan before. On the other hand, if it was successful, that cleared the way for Voyager 2 to use this further out aiming point at Saturn, Mm -hmm. give up Titan, pick the gravity assist carter to go on to Uranus and Neptune, and that all all worked out. But so there were a number of, if you could think of the logic flow chart on Voyager from the time we started designing it until the time we went through everything that happened. It was a, a, a beautiful path for any any decision maker. Uh-huh, I yeah. bet. Yeah. <laughs> I hope that exists someplace. I hope somebody actually oh, drew that out someplace. That would be a lot of boxes, I bet. That's right. As we know, it did make that Titan flyby. Right. And it couldn't see much. No, I know. It didn't have the right tools. But Linda Spilker on this program told us very oh. recently... That was one of the big incentives to send Cassini oh. because then we knew we've got to send radar. That's right. We need to send infrared, these other tools, and it worked. Oh, the radar was, was magnificent. You know, to, to image, was it Croc and Mare, that, that big shallow lake on the surface? Yeah, yeah you know, I think that's and, right. Yeah. Uh, oh, no. And, that, and, and Dr. Alachi headed the radar team. Yeah. And that was, oh, the. the the surface of Titan that has been constructed from all of the images and data is amazing, absolutely amazing. And Cassini has made many passes by Titan. Yep. That's right. Yeah, it pays to stick around in one place yes, for a right, while. Right. On the other hand, nothing quite has the romance of Voyager. 
You were involved in picking the name of that mission, weren't you? Oh, yeah. That was funny. Voyager was originally called Mariner Jupiter Saturn 1977, or MJS-77. Yeah, not very sexy. And John Cassani called a meeting one day with, with the staff, and he said, you know, we've got to find a better name than MJS-77. We came up with a, with a sort of a, a list. People just sort of said, all right, how about Nomad? How about, the, I can't remember them all now, Voyager and so forth. And there were probably 10 different candidate names. And we liked Voyager, but there was a little fear that there had originally been a project named Voyager you may not know about that had been canceled. It was a very expensive mission to launch two orbiter landers piggyback on a Saturn C5. Oh, and uh, that was, this was to Mars? That's right. Wow, okay. on a Saturn V. Right. And fortunately, NASA realized it was too expensive and too risky to have all your eggs in one basket. Mm. And so that Voyager got canceled. And I think in its place probably arose Viking. So we'd said, oh, my goodness, is, it, are, is this going to be bad luck if we name MJS-77 Voyager, given that a previous Voyager never made it? And we said, come on, we're, we're scientists. We're not superstitious. And we liked the name, so we went with it. So we went with Voyager with a little bit of nervousness. <laughs> yeah. And it was perfect. It was perfect. Yeah, it worked I mean, out. it's just right. Oh, it is. It is. <laughs> oh, it is. You said one of the other candidates was Nomad. Yep, I remember that name. By that time, there had been a Star Trek episode oh, with this Nomad that had was an Earth probe, if I remember correctly. It's a long time ago, yeah. original series. And it had melded with something else, kind of like oh. what they did in the Star Trek movie with, with your Voyager right. and made it V'ger. Right, V'ger. But right. it melded and it became this all-powerful robot. Um, but that was Nomad, and I wonder if it was the Star Trek inspiration. I don't know. I remember another name. Pilgrim was in the Pilgrim. list. Pilgrim. Okay. Was in, all I can remember at the moment because I, I, is Voyager, Pilgrim, and Nomad. Those are good but enough. there were others. There were other <laughs> names. Voyager Mission Design Manager Charlie Colhays has more for us after the break. This is Planetary Radio. Hello, I'm Robert Picardo, Planetary Society board member and now the host of the Society's Planetary Post video newsletter. There's a new edition every month. We've already gone behind the scenes at JPL, partied at Yuri's Night, and visited with CEO Bill Nye. We've also got the month's top headlines from around the solar system. You can sign up at planetary.org forward slash connect. When you do, you'll be among the first to see each new show. I hope you'll join us. Hi, I'm Kate. And I'm Whitney. We've been building a youth education program here at the Planetary Society. We want to get space science in all classrooms to engage young people around the world in science learning. But Kate, are you a science teacher? No. Are you? Nope. We're going to need help. We want to involve teachers and education experts from the beginning to make sure that what we produce is useful in your classroom. As a first step, we're building the STEAM team. That's science, technology, engineering, arts, and mathematics. So teachers, to learn more about how you can help guide this effort, check out planetary.org slash STEAM team. That's planetary.org slash STEAM team. And help us spread the word. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Welcome back to Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan. Charlie Colhays was only half his current age when Voyagers 1 and 2 departed Earth in 1977 for the outer solar system and interstellar space. 
The Voyager mission design manager led the team that figured out how the spacecraft could slingshot through the planets, returning data and images that are still making news and leaving viewers dumbstruck with their beauty. Were you involved with the creation of the Golden Record with that team with Carl Sagan Uh, and other folks? No. No, I wasn't. Because there's Uh, a picture of you standing next to it with a big smile, and I just wondered, did you feel good about it being part of the mission? Oh, yeah. No, that was, it was fine, fine to fly that. The thing I found the most interesting about it was the way the cover to the Golden Record was designed to allow anyone that happened to discover it to learn where it came from. Mm -hmm. If you look at that, you'll see that this uh, instructional cover knew that something that was fundamental in the universe that Carl and, and whoever did this design figured someone advanced enough to find Voyager would understand mm-hmm. is hydrogen. And hydrogen goes through a hyperfine transition where the spin of the proton and the electron reverse and they flip. And that's called a hyperfine transition. They decided to let that be the unit of time. And they used the binary system in different directions of pulsars from our solar system. And what their pulsing rate was using a binary system of zeros and ones, but where the time unit was this hyperfine transition. Okay. Brilliant. And I thought that was absolutely brilliant. They also put a, a, a stylus in to play the record. Yep. Yeah. I thought, I yeah. So that they could uh, decode those pictures. Right. You're an artist as well as a scientist. Right. The idea of sending works of art, oh. beautiful photos representing our planet and our civilization, that had to capture your imagination like it did so many oh, people's. Oh, it did. It did. No, I'm, I'm, I'm very much a left-brain science, uh, logic, engineering, right-brain artist and so forth. And in fact, I like, I, I like best projects that involve both sides of my brain. And I was totally supportive of all the things they did in that, in that vein. How did the artistic side of your mind, how did that mesh with the science side? Why did those work well together for you? Well, I, it's funny. In, in the earliest days, I could visualize trajectory. If, if, if I was designing some orbit around some body, I could see it in my head in 3D almost to scale. And I consider that the, uh, the artistic side and, mm-hmm. and not the scientific. The scientific side would, would sort of write all the equations down and, you know, generate whatever. But I could, I could picture all of these things in my head. And uh, I loved it. I've, I've loved photography. And, and, you know, I eventually taught 3D modeling and animation at PCC. Yep, Pasadena was, City yeah. College. I read that sometimes you would go to bed with a problem in your head. Oh, yeah. And you'd wake up eureka. No, I know. That, I know that sounds like BS. <laughs> but that, was, that saved me a huge amount of time. <laughs> that happened regularly. I would, I would, just before falling asleep, I would sort of think about a problem that hadn't been solved that day. And when I woke up the next morning, I knew the answer just like that. And it was solved in my sleep. And that, was, that really helps when you've got a lot of work to do. I'll say, yeah, man. I, I wonder what that dream was about. <laughs> you already mentioned Jim Blinn. 
Oh, yeah. One of the artists you've worked with. Right. You work with Don Davis a lot, too. Right. Famous. Oh, Don. Don's a wonderful person. space right. artist. Yeah. Yeah. You also got the chance, I think, because of what you did, to meet a lot of the greats in science fiction, another kind of oh, art, yeah. right? No. I mean, you're, you're, you're a longtime no, fan, No, Arthur right? C. Clarke and, and uh, Ray Bradbury. Heinlein? Briefly. I spent a day with Neil Armstrong. So, no, I've, I've been very fortunate in meeting the greats. You know, most of them, I mean, many of them are gone now. Yeah. I mean, Bradbury's exactly. gone, Armstrong's gone, Clark's gone. Uh, and I knew them at the time and had enormous respect for them. I wouldn't take it back. I would, I would want my life over again because I don't think it could have been worked out any better. Mm-hmm. I met great people and got the assignment of a lifetime everybody dreams of. And I was kind of worried about that, you know, several people. You know, Ralph Miles had the, the Voyager job in the beginning. He decided he didn't want to continue, and I never understood it. And Bud Shermeyer said, mm. okay, we're opening up this position of science and mission design manager. And I applied for it, and I thought, oh, geez, you know, I don't, I don't know if I'll get it or not. One thing that happened that, that probably gave me a leg up on the other candidates <laughs> Earlier, Gentry Lee had been running a, a large department at Martin Marietta in, in Denver. And Gentry was about to leave, and they decided to interview me for that position. One week, they said, we want you to, to fly up and, and be interviewed. Now, I was happy at JPL. I wasn't looking for anything. I thought, what have I got to lose? And I took a Friday off, went up on, on a Friday. And I remembered Thursday late. My boss said, are you going to be here in tomorrow, Friday? I said, no, geez, I've got to go. He said, where are you going to be? I said, well, I'm going to Martin Marietta. He didn't look too happy about that, but <laughs> said, okay. So I go up there. The morning is great. I'm seeing all of these department heads, and everybody's being nice to me and treating me well. And I thought, Jesus is, you know, I'm probably going to get an offer. And then... Someone takes me to lunch in the executive dining room at Martin Marietta. And Gentry comes in and he says, listen, we all you know, love your qualifications, but you're going to find after lunch there's a noticeable change. They're not going to be that interested. They're going to kind of be going through the interviews in a rote fashion. And I said, why is that? They said, well, Pickering called the director of Martin Marietta. Pickering, the head of JPL yeah, at the time. And told him to lay off. <laughs> Okay, so I got back. Hands off our guy. Yeah, so I get back, and my boss at the time said, we know we shouldn't have done that, but so how can we make it up to you? I said, listen, if there's ever an opening, this was before the voice, ever an opening on a mission that has, you know, in the beginning stages, I'd like to be considered. And that opening came along on Voyager. Now, whether that sort of promised to make it up for to me for not letting me have the interview I'll never know, but that was, turned out I was the third person Martin had tried to get away from JPL, and that just did it. Pickerington, number three, I'm going to draw the line. JPL must have been a very special place then. It still is, right. I think. But well, a lot more politics there now than there used to be. Well, tell me, I mean, uh, how was it different in those days? Well, or what in, was the it? Early, in the what? early days, the atmosphere was very academic. You had... Remember what happened. NASA eventually, when the Ranger program started having failures, yeah. claimed 
that it was because JPL had too loose an academic atmosphere. And that's when they started appointing military mm -hmm. uh, generals and admirals to be the deputy directors at JPL. Mm -hmm. Okay, Which continues. Uh, it continues, yeah. right. And the only one that sort of was was well really acceptable was Dr. Allen because he also had a PhD in physics. So General Allen was also known as Dr. Allen. Well, he was actually director. I'm talking about deputy directors, but... Yeah, yeah. But then with that change from the sort of Caltech studious academic atmosphere came a lot more reviews, hmm. constantly reviewing things over and over. Well, you had so many creative people, oh, though. I know. It must and have creative changed. people didn't like that, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I mean, and it's interesting because, after all, JPL is still part of Caltech. Right, no, I know. An academic institution. So. In spite of any, anything that may have changed there over the years, it's such an amazing record of accomplishment out of JPL. If, if I meet people and, and they learn that I worked at JPL, they immediately have, there's a lot of respect for JPL. And, and that will always be there. Let me go back to you. Mm -hmm. I read that um, you started to teach yourself Boolean algebra at a very oh. young age and then built a puzzle-solving machine. Oh, geez. Yeah, I did. Although, well, the, the first thing I built was a, was a kind of a, a, an Air Force fighter decision thing that, that, uh, that it'll be hard for me to go into well. But then the next thing I did is, you know, there's this famous little problem of the man who has a fox and a chicken and a dog, and he has to take them from one side of the river to the other. Oh, yeah. But he can't. If he leaves the dog with the fox, the dog will eat the fox. And if he leaves the <laughs> fox with the chicken. But if he's with them, it prevents one of these climates from happening. And so I built something that had five switches on it that when they were all in the down position was, let's say, the south side of the river and up position was the north side. And I would throw them, okay, man takes fox over first, man comes back alone, man takes chicken over, brings fox back. He, he has to do it in this sequence. And it worked. It worked great. And so... What, did, uh, did this like light up oh, little yeah. lights oh, or something? Oh, yeah. Or? No, no. If I allowed one of these creatures he's trying to get across to be hurt by another or eaten by another, it, it flashed a red warning light. Mm -hmm. So you had to throw the switches in, in a way that, that you never got that. And so that was... Boolean algebra, you know, Boolean algebra is a bunch of and. Not and, and, not, yeah, all or, of that, right. not that, or. That's right. Yeah. That's right. The, the, and it's still, it still is oh, it's the basis still. of what runs what's deep inside computers. That's right? right. That's right. So you go from the Boolean algebra to the circuit design, which is made up of series and parallel connections, and the switches are in there, and, and it, it all worked out. You were doing this stuff when you were 10, 11 years old. Right. I read that your father was not didn't really approve of your no, interest he, in science. He and didn't. What What did he do or say when you just told him, oh, "Dad, this is what I want to do with my no, life"? No, he 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 told me the only thing worth studying was mechanical engineering. So when I went to Georgia Tech, I enrolled in in ME for my freshman and sophomore years, but I had still had to take courses in math and physics, and I realized I just didn't want to stay in engineering. So I switched my major between my sophomore and junior years. And as soon as I told him that, he said, you have made the greatest mistake of your life. And he cut me off. He never gave me. I had to 
pay the rest of my way to college. Wow. And uh, no, he really meant it. That was it. He was dead wrong. Well, and he he only acknowledged that I had done okay on his deathbed. In the last three or four weeks of his life, I went back to see him, and he said, well, son, you did okay. But but for 60 years, or 45 years or so, he really didn't approve of it. I'm glad he didn't influence you too much, (laughs) uh, uh, at least to the point of going in the wrong direction. What did you do before you got to JPL from after graduating? You had a few years. You were doing other stuff until you reached the lab in 1959. To shape me up, he sent me to a military academy for, for high school. So I had, from the 7th grade to the 12th, I carried a rifle and marched around a field and you know, whipped into shape all the time. Did it work? <laughs> I don't think so. As I approached my senior year, I knew that I had to put some time in the military somehow. So I had gone through the Naval Reserve Officers Training Corps, the NROTC program at Georgia Tech. I was what's called a contract student. I only had to put in two years and not four. And that's all I wanted to do. So I... Uh, graduated as an ensign, I got commissioned as an ensign in the Navy, and I served on two aircraft carriers. Hmm. Uh, in both cases, as the electrical officer of a nuclear weapons team, wow. assistant electrical officer. And I finally was promoted to Lieutenant JG. And when I got out in 1959, then I came to JPL. But, but, but just to be clear, you were working on circuitry in nuclear weapons that were stored on this aircraft carrier. God forbid this should have been used. I know. Well, the funny thing is the, the, the training for this took place in Albuquerque, New Mexico. It was called the Armed Forces Special Weapons Project or something. So I had to go to Albuquerque for, I can't remember, three or four months to go through the, through the training. And I remember the final exam, we were matched up in partners the final exam my partner and I had is we're going through a simulated checkout of a nuclear weapon. <laughs> Unbeknownst to us, the instructor had shorted, had put a pin in a cable to short out two lines uh-huh. that caused the weapon to start counting down for an explosion. <laughs> and here we've got 60 seconds to find it. And we found it. Unbelievably, we... we looked at all the charts and said, the only way this can happen is here. We quickly disconnected it, pulled the pin out, and, and passed. Those were the days, Matt. I, don't, I would be fumbling around now like a, like a dummy. But to, <laughs> to go from nuclear weapon maintenance to exploring the solar oh, system, what a transition. It is. And I, obviously, I, I have no love of nuclear weapons. I, I, I wish there weren't any. And the, and the best way I could get away from that was to go into space. Time to provide some advice. Okay. Young, starstruck man or woman wants to be a part of exploring the solar system with robots. What do you tell them? What, what should they study? What should they do? Well, the, the, hopefully, the best chance you have when you're a little boy or a little girl is you've got to have, this is before they get to the point where the question you asked me, 
Hopefully you have at least one person in your life that loves you, that tells you stories, Hmm. reads you stories, gets you interested in, in adventure. And I was lucky. My grandmother was that person. So then I began to read all sorts of stories. In fact, one one summer at a, at a little cabin in the Smoky Mountains, I, I, I was about 10 or 11, and I remembered reading The Count of Monte Cristo, which is 1,200 pages, The Three Musketeers, and, and Dracula. But then after that, I began to read science fiction. But what you need, you need that. You need to always be excited about certain things. Now, in terms of what you should study, I still believe in the fundamentals. I think you've got to understand math and physics. You've got to get it at least through calculus. But above it all, there has to be a, a kind of a, a mystery to it and, and a love that pulls you forward. And Would, would you say a sense of wonder? Yeah, that too. In fact, that reminds me, students from, from when I was 12 and 13, most of which are gone now, used to say I lay in the front lawn of my house and just stared up at the stars. Hmm. So you're right, Matt. It's a sense of wonder. But you, you can't just jump in and do it. You have to be trained in the fundamentals. And so, like it or not, as much wonder as you have, you must, you must take some basic courses. And I think it's important to be a good writer, too. A lot of engineers would send me material that poor grammar, poor sentence structure... It'd be a side benefit of learning to enjoy those stories, developing that sense of adventure. Right, you might right, learn how right. to work with language a little bit too. Right. You still like to look at those gorgeous Voyager photos? Oh, I yeah, I enjoy them. Of course, I've seen them hundreds of times. They're great. You got a book behind us here, which you said is coming out in about a month. Right. I, I don't want to blindside you, but I'm going to reach behind me here and grab it. Uh, actually, there are two books. Right. I mean, we're wrapping up, but I want to make sure people know. First of all, I read about this, but I hadn't seen it. Oh, yeah. The Voyager Neptune Travel Guide. Right. You said this went through three printings. It went through three printing cycles with the government printing office. And I actually took a chance on this one. I violated the the lab has, you know, guidelines for everything you do. And and the documents were supposed to be eight and a half by 11. I decided to have a coffee-sized table, six-by-nine book. And that was very popular. It was easy. The press picked it up. They could carry it around. Yeah. And, uh, and no one ever slapped my wrist for that. But I was often sort of stepping outside the box, figuring it was easier to say I'm sorry than to get approval. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so that each, each cycle printed about 10,000. So there were 30,000 copies of that printed. And I got to guess this may not be terribly available anymore. No. Fortunately, I still have two left. I found it was, I tried to find out if it was on eBay. And, a, and four or five years ago, I found out you could get a copy on eBay, but it was fairly expensive. Oh, that's no Daniel Steele, you know, page turner there. Oh, this is the other book. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this weighs a ton. I know. You said too- this one is coming out soon? In about a month. It's called The Complete Rocket Scientist by Charlie Colhays. And there's a great oh, illustration know, know. of Columbus with a fishbowl uh, on his head standing on the moon. <laughs> My dear friend and cartoonist Gary Hoblin. Hmm. In fact, he illustrated a, a word game book I did in 1985 called Word Pursuit. He did all the cartoons for it. And I told him I wanted something that conveyed rocketry and Renaissance man. And that was what he came up with. And I loved it. I thought it was funny. 
rocket in the background. The name, have to be a little careful here. You say, well, geez, what a presumptive title. If, if you check the literature, you'll find books that are named The Complete Flea, The Complete Gardener, The Complete Cockroach, The Complete Time Traveler. I thought, why not The Complete Rocket Scientist? And so it's with a certain sense of humor mm-hmm. that I, that I t- titled it. But there's only one chapter on space exploration. The rest is how a rocket scientist views the rest of the world, like religion and government and philosophy. And Look at the page that I opened to randomly oh here. My it's gosh. got a picture of the great attorney, Clarence Darrow. Oh, God. I know. <laughs> well, that's the section probably on fixing government. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yes, it is. Fascinating. Charlie, it's available in like a month, you said? Yeah. Instant publishing company, Collierville, Collierville Tennessee. Tennessee. Right. So you're you're self publishing it. Yeah. But I assume it'll be uh, available if people want to find well, it. Well, we'll we'll see. I'm, okay. I'm just initially publishing enough copies for my heirs and relatives. I want them to sort of know what I'm about before I pass into the next world and 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 close friends. I'd and, love to look through it. Charlie. Well, when uh, it comes out, I'll, I will. I'll buy a copy okay. from you. Uh, what else are you up to nowadays? Well, I got married two years ago yeah. to a really wonderful woman named Bozena. Uh She's from Poland, and she's a, a soprano. She sings and used to be in a dance company, and we laugh a lot. It's very important when you get older to laugh a lot. <laughs> and so we're now watching reruns of I Dream of Jeannie, and she had me watching Frasier for a while. Sounds like you're enjoying life. Well, I'm trying to, yeah. I'm doing the best I can. You know, getting older is only for the brave. I mean, I've lost colleagues. You know, they're going quickly. I try to stay in condition, try to keep my mind active. You seem to be in great shape. Well, I think I am. But, uh, you know, I'd like to make it to 90. I'd like to make it. Well, you know know what the Hayflick limit is. That's the maximum theoretical lifespan presently for a human being. It's about 120 years. If you've got good genes and you have low caloric intake and you live at high elevation and don't breathe much oxygen and, and you're happy and you have a good social mm-hmm. surrounding uh, and the telomeres, which are dividing off the ends of the, right. of the DNA, you know, don't divide too quickly, you might make it to 120. Now, if, if you start reading the literature... There are people now that think they may be able to slow that process, maybe cut it in half, which would then increase the lifespan to 240. Now, I wouldn't want to live to 240 if if I'm just in some mediocre physical shape. You have to have some cause. I'd like to be around to 90 anyway. I want to thank you for taking from this unique viewpoint that you've had Particularly with Voyager, but yeah. across uh, uh, many years of exploration in our solar system. Well, Matt, I appreciate it. You and I have always been friends, and, and uh, uh, I've I missed seeing you at, at times, and other times I've enjoyed it uh, very much, and I hope we continue to have this relationship. I have a lot of respect for you. You're, you're doing a wonderful job, and you scored some points with my daughter that time. <laughs> She said, geez, Dad, he knows who you are. <laughs> so I'm not alone. Uh, Thank you, Charlie. Thanks, Matt, very much. I appreciate it.
time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. We've got the Director of Science and Technology for the Planetary Society, Dr. Bruce Betts, and he's going to uh, fill us in. Hi there. Hi, Matt. How you doing? I'm uh, very happy today. I had a nice conversation with our friend Charlie Colhays, and uh, looking forward to DPS next week. I'll get to spend the whole week in Pasadena, which might not excite some people, but I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> Speaking for those people, you're right. <laughs> so what's up? Got the evening sky dominated by Venus low in the west shortly after sunset. If you look to the upper left of Venus, uh, you will hopefully find Saturn looking kind of yellowish and a lot dimmer. And go farther to the upper left and you will find Mars looking reddish but a lot dimmer than Venus. In the pre-dawn sky, Jupiter's low in the east coming up, getting higher over the coming weeks. Uh, easier to see right before dawn. We move on to this week in space history. It was 1967. Mariner 5 flew by Venus. All right, another important milestone in the exploration of our solar system. What's next, as if I didn't know? I don't know, man. I don't know. What could it be? Random space bat? This week, the Schiaparelli ESA entry descent lander test uh, will be going on on Mars. And uh, I thought I'd point out to you that it was named after Giovanni Schiaparelli. Italian astronomer from the mostly 1800s. He was a big Mars observer. In fact, coined the term canali, canali, which just meant channels, natural features in Italian, but got all scrambled coming to English and started the whole crazy there canals on Mars thing. Also, he has a big crater named after after him on Mars. It's 461 kilometers in diameter. And I'm guessing you think of it for another reason. And why is that? Because in the Martian, that's uh, the, the crater oh. that our hero had to get to. Completely forgot that. Thanks, by the way, to Percival Lowell for uh, giving us the uh, what he thought were actual canals, uh, leading to, uh, oh man, over a century now of fun with uh, Martians. That's true. That's true. I also, since you don't have the advantage of having heard my piece with Emily today when we talked about ExoMars and Schiaparelli, I think I got that right, or being married to an Italian woman as I am. I will just excuse it by saying you use the American pronunciation. Yes, I, I apologize for any offense I caused. Chaparelli? <laughs> yeah, that's a big improvement. Is Let's go right? on to the contest. Okay. Uh, we asked you, what are the names of the two asteroids that Rosetta flew by, as well as the name of the comet it studied and eventually was set down upon recently? And how'd we do, Matt? Well, this was one of the tougher questions you've asked recently, and I think that that had its effect on the number of entries. Still a lot more than we used to get, I think just an indication of uh, the growing audience for this program. Would you give us the answers, please? Because I, I'm hoping you'll do a better job of pronouncing them. I doubt it. Uh, apparently, I already failed on Schiaparelli. <laughs> they flew by the asteroid Steins, the very uh, much larger asteroid Lutetia, and then studied for a long time Comet 67P, churyumov Gerasimenko. Sounded good to me. And in that case, Mark Selfridge, longtime listener, first-time winner, is our winner this week. He hails from Boise, Idaho, way up there north. We're going to send him the uh, Planetary Radio T-shirt, a Planetary Society rubber asteroid, and a 200-point itelescope.net astronomy account. So congratulations, Mark. We'll get that stuff in the mail. Uh, as you might expect, I had mail from uh, many other people with interesting comments, including this from Craig Baylog in Woodbridge, New Jersey. 
He said, I believe Rosetta also did observations on a third asteroid named P2010A2, and it helped to confirm that it was an asteroid and not a comet. I guess there was some question about that. It was discovered by Hubble, but um, but I guess Rosetta played a part. By the Hubble Space Telescope, I assume you mean not uh, Edwin Hubble. No, not Edwin. <laughs> Though I'm sure if he was around, he'd claim it. <laughs> <laughs> knowing a little bit about undoubtedly his yeah that was more a, a distant <laughs> observation as opposed to the flybys which is what i was looking for but yeah rosetta did all sorts of great stuff and then endless comments well not quite endless from a lot of people who just talked about how how much they were influenced uh, by the rosetta mission uh, a couple from israel nadav mayet uh, and uh, who decided to pursue planetary science because of the mission danilin barnett who said her three-year-old is a is a big Rosetta fan, especially of the animation that was done uh, around that mission. And uh, this one from Birko Katarino Ruzica in Germany, who uh, said that she's writing her PhD thesis on the geology and morphology of 67P. And so she's a, a big fan of Rosetta as well. Yeah, I bet. Cool. We're ready for another contest. All right. For this time, answer the following question. In what region is Issa Schiaparelli? supposed to land so what region on mars region name or coordinates or however you choose to convey it in a standardly accepted notation and we'll give a a special advantage to those of you who who are maybe listening to this after that landing we all hope it'll be successful and uh, we'll have a leg up on those who uh, enter early but if you enter you must do so you really must by the 25th that would be tuesday october 25th at 8 a.m. Pacific Time. And, and where do they enter? Planetary.org slash radio contest. Okay. Or you can drop a line to Planetary Radio at Planetary.org, which is also where I just welcome your comments about the radio show. And uh, I read all of those, and I try to reply to as many as I can. By the way, the nice people at National Geographic and our guest last week, uh, Andrew Fazekas, the uh, author of Star Trek, The Official Guide to Our Universe, The True Science Behind the Starship Voyages. You remember that, right? Well, they've given us another copy of the book to give away. And we'll throw in a Planetary Society rubber asteroid and a 200-point itelescope.net account, that nonprofit network of worldwide telescopes. <gasps> We're done. Ooh. All right, everybody, go out there, look out the night sky, and think about your favorite trace gas. Thank you, and good night. I was going to say I like radon, but it may not like me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even sure it's a trace gas, is it? Uh, I don't know. Just move on. That's Bruce Betts. He's the director of science and technology at the Planetary Society, who joins us every week here for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its ever-voyaging members. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which was arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. I'm Matt Kaplan. Clear skies. Clear skies.